mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we are starting a, you might say a series, but really just a, an overarching theme in the fall, and that is uh, contend. We're just going to be looking at different major doctrines, teachings from the scriptures, things that are not just, you know, more information or, or just truths, but really truths that are meant to be foundational to our lives, uh, doctrines, truths that the Lord wants to come alive in our life, in our experience, in our ministries. And so I trust that there'll be an encouragement to you as we look at a number of different things, maybe some topics you haven't heard addressed for a while, or just some things you've wondered about, but uh, we'll be dealing with that through the fall. And I thought this morning as we begin to unpack some topics that probably there's nowhere better to start than simply the question, what is the gospel? We talk about the gospel and just ask, what exactly is this gospel that we profess to believe, uh, that we're supposed to share? And our scripture this morning is Mark chapter 1. It's just the introduction of his gospel, his story about Jesus, and it's interesting what he has to say, and we're going to unpack this just a little bit this morning. Mark writes in chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I am sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And that messenger, he goes on to say, is John. Now, after John was taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee doing what? Preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In other words, it wasn't the time for him to be revealed, and so he commanded them to remain silent. But Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if I was to ask us this morning, what is the gospel? Probably the majority of us would say, gospel means what? Good news, right? And that's right. It means good news. Or if I was to ask you, what is a gospel campaign? Probably many of us would think of stadiums filled with people listening to Billy Graham or Reinhard Bonnke or whoever the evangelist today may be. And again, that's not altogether, altogether wrong. But what's interesting is that the word gospel is not a religious term. That's not where it came from. The word gospel actually came from the ancient Roman Empire. And gospel means a declaration of war. That's what gospel means. When a new emperor would ascend to power, he would gather his advisors, his generals, and they would assess the state of the empire, which was vast, far-reaching. And they would talk about if there's skirmishes somewhere, uprisings, things are stirring, or maybe someone's not paying their dues, whatever. And the new emperor would come to power, and he would then send his legions of armies into those areas to suppress any uprising, to bring things into order, or to establish their peace throughout the realm. When he did that, that was called a gospel campaign. It was the proclamation of good news that a new emperor has come. And wherever there's been slackness, wherever there's been uprising or in times of transition, you can be assured that this new emperor is going to demonstrate the power of his reign and is going to restore peace. And so if you are part of the realm, if you are cooperative, one of the citizens of the realm, then the good news or the gospel campaign was certainly good news to you. 
But it was a terrifying ordeal to anyone or any group or any region that was having the gospel campaign waged against them because they were in some ways perhaps stirring trouble. In fact, back in 63 BC, 63 years before Christ, Pompey the Great of Rome was said to have gospeled the land of Israel, the land of Palestine. He brought the nation of Israel into subjugation under Roman rule. And so this word gospel does mean good news. And it is good news for those of us who know Jesus Christ in the context of what we understand the gospel to be. We know it is good news that Jesus came into this world. He died for our sin. He made a way for us to be reunited with our Heavenly Father. That is wonderful news. But when Jesus came to declare the gospel, the fact is every Jew in Jesus' day understood what it meant. They understood this is a declaration of war. Now, as probably many of you are familiar in, with Roman culture or the way of Roman warfare, is that when an emperor and the armies would go to different, uh, different lands to, to subjugate these other peoples, when they returned victorious, before they ever got to the city, they would send out in front of them a runner. And the runner would get to the city gates and the, and the, the vast throughway, the main street that runs through the city, they would run down the streets declaring, your emperor is coming. Your new emperor, which means king of kings, has won a great victory for you. And he is coming in victory. He is coming with his spoils. And you get to share in the spoils of a war that you did not fight in because you are citizens of this realm. You are citizens of Rome. And as the emperor and as the generals would make their way into the city, into the streets, the crowds would begin to cheer, Hail Caesar! And there'd be great joy in the city, not only for the, for the uh, campaign itself that was successful, but because of the freedom that would be assured to the citizens because of the riches they would be able to enjoy. That was the gospel. And so when you read Mark's words, he's introducing Jesus by saying, in the beginning, it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? It is the beginning of the invasion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And John the Baptist, as we know, came before Jesus, before Jesus revealed himself. And what was he declaring? There is a new king coming. He is coming in power. He is the king of kings. And he is going to free his people. He is the savior of the world. Prepare yourselves for his arrival. This king is coming and things are going to change. And so in a very culturally relevant way, John's proclaiming that Jesus is invading the land of Israel. He is the new emperor. He is the king of kings. That's why the religious leaders, for example, got upset. Because they were getting kind of concerned, like, we've got to deal with Rome. We've got a good thing going on here. I mean, it's not ideal. It's not what we know God intends. They're pagan. We've got to put up with some stuff. But we kind of enjoy the peace. We kind of enjoy the positions that we hold, the prestige that we have. We're doing okay. We don't want to rock the boat. And here comes Jesus, and he's going to complicate things. The Romans were also keeping their eyes on Jesus. Now, we know that when Jesus was crucified, it was primarily through this manipulation of the religious leaders. But even the Roman rulers themselves, they were keeping an eye on him. In fact, when they crucified Jesus, what did they do? They nailed a sign above his head. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. What were they saying? This is a warning 
for anybody who is going to rise up and, 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 and have this gospel campaign against the Roman Empire, this is what's going to happen to you. And so the people understood very well what that meant. And yet, unlike other gospel campaigns, this war was not a subjugation of people. This war was intended to be a liberation of people. We all know that everyone expected the Messiah to come and to raise up an army, right? In fact, that is why the disciples were always arguing among themselves over who was the greatest. What do we mean by that? They were basically saying, when Jesus gets into his kingdom, judging by how the Lord has used me, what I've seen the Lord do through me, judging by how much I talk to him as opposed to you talk to him, judging by how much I'm probably more of a favorite than you are, when he comes into his kingdom, I'm going to get the better position. I'm going to get that, that, that post. I'm going to get that political position. That's what they understood. They were just waiting for the armies to be gathered. That's why even John the Baptist was confused. Remember when John the Baptist was in prison? And what does he do? He sends his disciples to find Jesus and ask a question. And what was the question? Jesus, man, did I miss the boat? Like, are you really the Messiah? Or like, do we have to keep on looking? Because it's not coming together like I thought. Now, keep in mind, this is John the Baptist. This is the forerunner. This is the messenger, right? In fact, I found it interesting when I was just reading over the scriptures the other night that here in, in Matthew 11, verse 3, John sends his disciples to Jesus and say, are you the right one? If you go back to Matthew 3, verse 11, 11, 3, 3, 11, Coincidentally, it's actually in that verse that John is preaching to the crowds and he's saying, there is one coming who's greater than me. I'm not the prophet Elijah. I'm not, I'm not the Messiah coming. You see God doing wonderful things through my ministry. I'm just here to declare the real one who's coming. In fact, you think I'm great? He is so great, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. I baptized you in water. But he is coming to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, I baptize you in water for the remission of your sins. That's not a hard thing to do, dunking somebody in water. But the one who's greater than me is coming to do something that you've never seen before. He's coming to do something supernatural. He's coming to do something you can't do in your own flesh. So imagine John going from that place, from that understanding, from that excitement, from that declaration to a little while later saying, Jesus, are you the one? Like, I, I just literally put my head on the block for you. Are you really the one? And get this, what Jesus says to the disciples. He says, he doesn't get upset. He says, hey, just go tell John this. Tell John about the miracles you've seen me do. Tell John that people are being set free from oppression and bondage. Tell John that things are happening that a physical army can't do. Blind eyes are seeing. Ears are being opened. Dead people are being raised to life. You go tell John the gospel is being proclaimed. What's he saying? He said, you go tell John the invasion is on. It's happening. And things are being done that no human army, no human might can even begin to scratch and do. I am changing lives at the level of the heart. I'm transforming lives by the power of God. You go tell John, that is what you are seeing. The kingdom of God has arrived. And we don't get John's response. But I can well imagine John hearing those words in that prison and a smile coming to his face. And John saying, oh, bless God, now I get it. I didn't understand, but now, okay, okay, I understand what this is all about. 
And I bet he was rejoicing. Because you see, Jesus was raising up an army. The kingdom of God was at hand, but it wasn't a physical one. It was a spiritual one. Jesus said to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, you may remember in John 18. Remember, he's standing before Pilate, the Roman governor, the one who has all the authority of Rome behind him. He's about to go to the cross. And what does Pontius Pilate do? Pontius Pilate knows he's innocent. These are trumped up charges. And he's pleading with Jesus to not go to the cross, basically, not understanding what this is all about. He's pleading like, why don't you just speak up? Why don't you say something? Don't you understand that I have the power to either release you or kill you? And what does Jesus say? And he's not being smart. He just speaks truth. He says, sir, you have no power over me except what was given to you from above. You've got to understand with all your authority behind you, all the armies, all the wealth and splendor of Rome, it is but a pittance compared to the power of the kingdom of God and what he is doing. His will will be done. Whether you're part of it or not, what's going to happen is in God's control. He understood the power where the real power lie, where the real armies were, where the real kingdom was. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. What was Jesus saying? My kingdom has a very real world effect, but my kingdom is heaven invading this earth. My kingdom is the power and the spirit and the love of God coming and setting free people who are just worn out, who are tired, tired of life, tired of dead religion. They're just tired. And so when we understand the gospel, we know the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually a rescue mission. But the victories, how are they won? They're won through salvations. They're won through healing. They're won through deliverance. They're wandering through the gifts of the Holy Spirit being in operation through God's people that are transforming hearts that have been hurt by the struggles of life, hearts that have been hardened by wrong choices and by sins. That is how the kingdom is executed. That's how the kingdom spreads. And it does a transforming work at a level that no human power is able to do. Friends, hear me. I see what's going on in our culture today. But the answer is not politics. There's a time to stand. There are, there are venues through which we are able to, to make a change and operate. But friends, we need to be careful as the people of God. Things are not going to change in our nation just because the political party has taken over. Just because of some human structure. I understand different parties, different policies, and you can have parties that will take a country to hell. We see that in the States today. But that's not the primary place that we fight. We've got to understand there is a greater power. There is a greater work that God can do. There is a way that God can transform a nation because we can change political powers and policies will certainly influence a little bit the way certain things go. But you know what? It's never going to address the darkness and the rot and the depth of demonic activity that binds our nations. When you're sound asleep at night, you don't know what's going on in the streets. You don't know what's going on behind closed doors. Jesus does, and he knows no political power is going to even scratch the surface. But he says there's a kingdom at work with miracle working power. There are people who understand through prayer, the power of prayer and fasting and intercession that the Holy Spirit, the angels of God can be released behind closed doors. People can begin to feel conviction and not even know why. People can find themselves in the bedrooms with their life literally go to hell, never heard of Jesus Christ, but all of a sudden find themselves calling out to God. God, if you're up there, God, if you're real, why? Because there's somebody in their neighborhood who's praying for them. There's churches who understand. 
who understand that we need to be involved at every level of society where we can be. But the primary place we need to be is right here on the walls of our city and saying to the powers of hell, nothing gets into the city and everything leaves this city according to what God wants to do. His plan for our city, his destiny. But we as the people of God, we've got to take our place. Not just believe it. We've got to take our place and begin to function in the kingdom and understand what the gospel really is all about. I think Mark is very deliberate in his choice of words when he opens up that chapter. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Why does he say that? He said, it's the beginning because he never intended any of these things to end with his death. It's just the beginning. Do you hear me this morning? It's the beginning. It was never meant to stop. In fact, if you study church history, you'll see that for the first few centuries, even the early church fathers record that these things were still happening. This is just a regular part of the church's DNA. They understood what the gospel was. In fact, Mark closes his account in chapter 16 with the words of Jesus who said, these signs will accompany those who what? Those who believe. Those who believe. Read it with me. In my name, they will cast out demons. Stop there for a second. Now listen, I know this whole idea of demonology, this whole idea of deliverance. I know it's just an ancient myth, right? I mean, nobody's demonized today, right? I mean, let's be real. There's not demons behind every, you know, the demons aren't responsible for everything, right? Wrong. Wrong. If we've ever seen demonic activity, my friends, it is today. We are seeing the things happen in our culture that the natural mind cannot understand because our nation is becoming demonized. It's becoming tormented. And it's time for the people of God to understand that whenever Jesus speaks the commission, the very first thing he says time and time again, you will cast out demons in my name. And that didn't change. And we've got to be a church and we've got to be a people who understand wherever we go, he may just call on you to cast out demons. That's as natural as praying for the sick. That's as natural as sharing the gospel with somebody. It's just part of the package. It's part of the invasion because people are still bound. But it was just the beginning. It was never meant to end. And Mark closes with those words. He says, in my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will lay hands upon those who are sick and they will recover. And again, that was common practice. So to the first century listener, the gospel message was very clear, and it was understood as nothing less than a declaration of war. And in this case, it was a declaration of war by God against Satan. Not against people, but against the powers of darkness. The Bible says in 1 John 3, the Son of God appeared for one reason. What? To destroy what the devil had done. To tear down everything the enemy had set up. That's why demons often cried out when they were approached by Jesus. What would they say? They'd say either, you know, don't torment us, Jesus, before our time. And what did Jesus do? He tormented them. Because they said, that's what I've come to do. Don't ask for pity for me. I'm not here to be your buddy. I'm not here to give you a break. I've been watching for thousands of years how you've been tormenting the human race. You think I have pity on you? I know why you're here. We don't strike a deal. There's no such thing as the devil having a good day. It doesn't work that way. He's a bully. He will steal, kill, and destroy every opportunity he has. And the people of God got to start rising up and say, I'm not compromising with you, enemy. You're not my friend. I'm not going to give you a break. You don't give me a break. I'm coming after you. 
That's why Jesus said in verse 14, the time is fulfilled. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, people, there's no more waiting. They've been waiting for hundreds of years. They had a 400-year drought where they never heard from God at all. And Jesus says, it's fulfilled. It's here. What's he saying? It's on. It's on. It has started, and it's not going to stop. Then he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. He means it's breaking in. The army of God has arrived, and God is going to unleash violence against the kingdom of Satan, not against people, but against the powers of darkness. So do what? He says, so repent. What does repent mean? Change the way you think. Embrace the truth that Jesus comes to bring. Change the wrong ways you think about God. Change the wrong ways you think God thinks about you. Start living in the truth of who you are, who Jesus is, and what he's come to do. You've got to get both those things right if you're going to live in freedom and if you're going to minister freedom. And finally, he says, believe in the gospel. Friends, you've got to have confidence that the invasion for your freedom is happening and it will succeed. Hear me, friends. All of us here this morning, there are ears where Holy Spirit speaks to us and he says, I want to free you in this area. And so many times, what do we do? I don't believe it. I've tried before. Or I don't know. Could I really hope for that? The Lord says, believe. I don't speak something to you if I'm not going to do it. I don't lie. I don't exaggerate. I don't say something that makes you feel nice. I speak truth to you. He said, I'm speaking to you because I want you to be free. And that's why oftentimes it seems like a strange thing. But Jesus would say to people, do you want to be healed? Duh. No, no. Do you want to be healed? Because it's going to require something of you. Not that you make it happen. I'll make it happen. But do you believe? It's like the man in Mark chapter 9 who brought his son who's being demonized to Jesus. And, and the, the child starts to kick and stir. And, and he starts to manifest again. And the, the father turns to Jesus. And Jesus, if you can do anything, please help. And he said that because he came to the disciples when Jesus wasn't there. And he thought, well, Jesus isn't here. But it's okay. His disciples are. And because they're his disciples, naturally, they can do what Jesus does. And his assumption was right. They should be able to do what Jesus did. But now because they didn't, now the man's starting to feel disheartened. And so when the son begins to manifest a little bit, now he panics, Jesus, if you can do anything. And what does Jesus say? If I can do anything? All things are possible to those who believe. What did he say? Oh, Jesus, please help my unbelief. I do believe. And some of us are here this morning, we need that same reaction. Lord, forgive me for buying the lie that I have to put up with this. Forgive me that I've got to tolerate this in my life, this sin, this stronghold, this fear, this apathy, this, whatever it may be in my marriage, relationship, whatever, wherever the enemy has come. Forgive me for believing, Lord. I have to accept this. Forgive my unbelief, Lord. Help me to believe. And I pray the Lord would stir something in our heart to begin to believe. That's what he means when he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The prophet Isaiah spoke of the Lord's coming. In chapter 40, he says, you have good news to tell. Shout it out and don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Look, the Lord your God is coming. How? With power. He's not coming in some secret way, just like he's not coming again in some secret way. When Jesus comes for his church, every eye will see him when he comes in the rapture. There's no secret rapture. Every single eye, the world will see Jesus coming in the clouds. And in the same way, when he came the first time, he didn't just sneak in and then sneak back out. He came, and by the words he spoke, by the, by the miracles he performed, what did he do? He says, I'm here. Look, 
by undeniable proofs, the kingdom of God is here. It's no secret. Everything he did, his resurrection, everything, his appearance, his ascension, it was all to make perfectly clear to those who saw. Listen, friends, the whole deal is wrapped up. I came, I conquered, I kicked butt, I'm going back home. And now it's up to you to do the exact same thing. Sorry for saying but. You can't blame a man for what he says under the anointing. That's what he said to the prophet Isaiah. You have good news to tell. Shout it out and don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Look, the Lord your God is coming in power. And friends, that's our message. That's our message. Our message is not, you know, would you like to come to church with me? That's not bad. But our message, we are to go out individually. God is here. We've got good news. He's real. You can know the Lord your God. This is good news. Friends, our cities are waiting to see who God is. People are waiting to see the goodness of God. God's restoring his gifts to the church, at least in the Western culture. They've already been in operation around the world for centuries. Things like prophecy, healing, deliverance, all these things speak into the hearts of people who no longer have hope. People that are worn out. You see, the reality is we make a lot of it sometimes, and even folks deny because they're not comfortable with it, but that's too bad. The reality is when God gives you a word for someone, when healing happens, when deliverance happens, what's happening? That person actually knows that Jesus is real, and he cares enough about them to come to their rescue. That's what brings people to Jesus. That's what actually converted a pagan Roman empire in in, in only a couple centuries. Why? Because everywhere the believers went, they were declaring, here's your God. Oh, yeah, you serve false gods, but here's the real God. And let us demonstrate why he's real. And I think we need the same today. We all know that the powers of darkness have a stranglehold in our culture. We see the stranglehold in our schools and our families. We see a nation that's turning its back on God, a nation that increasingly is persecuting believers, a nation that is brainwashing our children. We see all that stuff. You know what I also see? There's a stirring happening. What I see is that the kingdom of God is actually being declared again. His power is being unleashed to the church. I know some folks are uncomfortable with it, but I, I don't know what to tell you. You see, I grew, up in a con- I grew up in a denomination that believed the gifts of the Holy Spirit stopped, but I find them in a denomination today that believes the same thing. Oh, no, we don't need apostles anymore, don't need prophets anymore, you know, that kind of thing. No, no, we need the five-fold gifts in the church. We need all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Whether you're comfortable or not, the world needs them. You may be having a good life and things are going well and you're freed up, but you know what? You don't have the right to live in freedom when there's people around you in bondage. Oswald Chambers said, the great mission evangelist, he said, nobody has the right to hear the gospel twice before everybody's heard it once. That's a nice saying. There's a lot of truth to that, but friends, the same thing. It's very easy for us to have our theology and sit back and what we're comfortable with because a lot of us may feel like life is good. God is with me. He's there when I need him. But we forget there's a world that doesn't know that. There's a world lost without hope and darkness and doesn't know where to turn. And they're just saying, is there a God out there somewhere? And we as the people of God have a responsibility to share that message. And there is a stirring happening today. Stadiums are being filled with a new generation of evangelists of all ages. And the power of God once again is beginning to be seen by a lost and broken world. 
I was saying in the first service, I was just so proud of some of our young adults. I, I had to go to Quispan. We had our grandson with us for the day, and we had our uh, Love on Moncton uh, group in the morning. What a great group. And uh, drove them down to Quispan, and they were just having a gather-to-go uh, training session. And just to sit there and just see our young adults who were just passionate for the Lord. Just seeing them to take a Saturday, a day when you might be goofing off and doing your own thing. They have a heart because of what they've experienced with the Lord. They say, we've got to share this. And they were down there taking their Friday night and taking all day Saturday just to, to help activate other believers and to go in the streets and do ministry and to share Christ with people I couldn't be more proud. And I know many of our young adults, many of our people in our congregation are like that as well. But friends, we need to understand that's why we here at Glad Tidings Church, that's why our mission statement says that Glad Tidings Church is not an institution. We say that with me? Glad Tidings Church is not an institution. One more time, Glad Tidings Church is not an institution. What is it? It is a movement of people who understand that we are Jesus' plan to transform and to heal our community. That's why we're here. That's why we gather together. That's why we enjoy the presence of the Lord. We've got a story to tell. We've got a mission to fulfill. And it's not drudgery. It's exciting. It's an adventure. That's why we come together. That's why we encourage one another. That's why we grow in the things of the Lord, because we understand we are a movement. Jesus is marching to the rescue, and we're marching with him. I believe despite what we see in our culture today, the tide is turning. The Bible says we live in this world, but we do not live according to the spirit of this world. We have weapons that are specifically designed to do things that no military power can do. Specifically designed to confront and to overthrow the powers of darkness. Nobody else can do that. And I gotta tell you, friends, and you know this as well, we live in a world today, it may not be Christian, but it is very spiritual. People are longing for spiritual experience. They know there's so much more. There has to be more, and there is. Our weapons are prayer, fasting, holiness, humility, evangelism, all these things confirmed by the power of God. Friends, we need the same weapons that Jesus used. Do you believe that? I mean, just let us sink in. If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit in his fullness and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, don't you think we might? Especially if we're going to continue what he's begun. We have to have the same. And thank God those signs do follow people who believe Jesus said. I want to just close with these last two scriptures. You know, people will say, and I agree, people will say we need to be like the early church. And that is true in so many ways. Not that the early church was perfect. That's why we have the epistles. They had problems that needed to be addressed. They were new believers too. But I believe that we need to be like the early church except in one area. Jesus said in Matthew 28 before he left, he said, if you rose from the dead, he said, guys, all power is now mine. Through the cross and resurrection, I'm in charge. I have all authority. Then he said, now because of that, you go. Don't be afraid. You go. Then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they were all worried about political power. Rome's still in power. Lord, is your kingdom coming? What did Jesus say? Don't worry about that. Don't get all, all preoccupied with the things you see on the surface. All you need to know, you will receive power. You will receive the ability that you need when the Holy Spirit comes. And you will shine for me like witnesses in the darkness. Here in Jerusalem, the neighboring Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. We all know that story, right? He said, make disciples of all nations. Now, why do I not want to be like the early church in one area? It's in a single area 
where they did everything else except they did not obey the Lord's command to go. They were hungry for God. The church was growing daily. They were moving to two services and three services, and the congregations were full, and they had great music and great worship, and the Holy Spirit was there. The gift of operation of the spiritual gifts was there. They were having a grand old time in Jerusalem, and they were there for almost eight years. What did Jesus say before he left this earth? Go to all nations. In fact, just think of this. Just dawned on me the other day. Here they are on the day of Pentecost, empowered by the Holy Spirit and fire. Get this, speaking in languages supernaturally of the surrounding nations. Don't you think they would have connected the dots? Like how come we're speaking in these languages of surrounding nations? Oh right, Jesus said to go to the surrounding nations. Jesus said to go to those nations of whose language I'm speaking. But they didn't. They stayed where they were. And it wasn't until the Lord allowed persecution to come to Jerusalem that they fled Jerusalem and coincidentally taken the gospel with them, finally get them out. And I thought, Lord, it really is a picture of our Western church in many ways, right? When you think of it, we can be so prone to enjoy the presence of the Lord, enjoy some things we do, some, we see miracles, we see a number of things the Lord does, and we go home and we're encouraged. But so oftentimes, it just stops there. I don't know if I should, yeah, what odds? I already said but, so I'll say this. Listen, I kind of had a chuckle last week when we had Paul Rapley with us. Anybody here last week? Now, the reason I had a bit of a chuckle is because I wasn't expecting the service to go that way. Now, I had no problem with it. I'm very comfortable. We had a workshop that night, activation, praying for another, praying for the sick, all that good stuff. And I know when you get into counting how many miracles, I'm just going to be transparent for a moment. Like, I know there probably weren't that many, as, as many miracles as that. Now, you're saying, Pastor, you don't believe? No, no, I absolutely believe. I just know people lie. I just know when you pray for somebody, you know, sometimes they're still the same, but they just feel bad. They don't want to disappoint. They, oh, no, I'm all better. I feel better, really. You know, it's like Monty Python. Oh, it's just a flesh wound, you know. I shouldn't say Monty Python either. So I understand that. But you know what? Maybe there weren't 300 miracles. Maybe there were only 100. Oh, so that's not worth it then. There's only 100. Do you know how many folks would die to see 100 miracles? <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean... We saw wonderful things. And I understand that for some folks it's uncomfortable, for some folks never done this before. But you see, we're not interested in sitting down on a Sunday morning, listening to a message, being encouraged, you know, saying, oh, yeah, I agree with you, I agree with you, and then go home, cook dinner, turn on the TV, and go back to life. We're not interested in that. Because you see, we're not an institution. We're a movement of people. That means we take what we've experienced, what we've enjoyed, and we go. And can I encourage you as well as pastor this morning? I think a lot of the times when we're uncomfortable with something is because we're uncomfortable in our own lives. You know, we've not tried something before. We have different personalities, whatever the case may be. And listen, if something is clearly contradicted to Scripture, I'll be the first one. Uh, I don't really see that, whatever. But you've got to give some room to style. A lot of times it's just style we get upset with. We're not comfortable with that style. But you really can't go to the Scriptures and say, no, this 
clearly contradicts the Word of God. No, you'll see the spirit of that still manifest in the Word of God. And so we kind of get caught up in styles. And I see that a lot of times, you know, certain ministries will come to churches and maybe they play a different kind of music. Maybe they play country music, okay? I, I know there's no such thing as Christian country, but, but bear with me, you know? Or quartets. I mean, what is that, right? Um, I'm only teasing. But you know what I mean? Like whatever your style may be or you're comfortable with, we have a tendency to reject other styles and we think we're spiritual, but it's just style. That's all it is. I was saying to the first crowd, I mean, can you imagine? Most of us think, you know, if I was around in Jesus' day, I would have followed Jesus. Oh, I would have been tight with him. I would have been with the group. Everywhere he went, I would have stood for him. I would have been cheering him on. Oh, really? Really? What would you have done in that context for what you thought the gospel was or what you thought the kingdom of God was? And you see Jesus praying for a blind man, and he spits and makes mud on the eyes. Would you have gone, woo, praise God. Yeah, I see that in the Old Testament. Woo! You would have gone, yeah, I'm out of here. A little bit too much for me, Jesus. You can't be real. Or what if Jesus takes the deaf man aside and, and sticks his fingers in his ears, spits on his hand, rubs it on the guy's tongue? You would have said, cool. Oh, that's awesome. No, how many would have said, man, you're nuts. You can't be of God, right? No, we don't think that way, but we would have done that, many of us. Or would you have had enough discernment and maturity to take a step back and say, I don't understand it all. All I know is he was blind, now he sees. All I know is that Jesus did something that no human power could do. There's something here. The spirit of his operation is not contrary to the heart of God. So maybe I'm the one that has to grow a little bit. Maybe I'm the one that has to stretch a little bit. And I think one of the things I really enjoyed last week is that I know we had a few folks that were uncomfortable, and please don't feel condemned for that. That is not my heart at all. We're all at different places in our journey with the Lord. But I was so encouraged to have so many people come up to me after both services. Pastor, I've never prayed before someone, with someone and seen God heal them. Pastor, I've never had a word for somebody before. I can't believe God used me. Or, Pastor, I can't believe God touched me. It's been 20 years. It's been 10 years. Friends, <laughs> Style, I could care less. I see people being drawn to Jesus. I see people being set on fire. In fact, I'll just ask us this, and I mean it in all kindness. I just want you to think about it, right? How many of us left the service, even if we were encouraged, and that week said, Lord, lead me to someone who needs prayer. Lead me to someone after what I've seen, after what I've experienced, Lord, I'm going to look for the sick. I'm going to start a conversation with someone about Jesus and tell them what I just came from, right? Or how many of us left, well, that was an interesting service. See you next week. You see, it's a subtle thing, but do you see what you miss? Because Jesus says the gospel is a declaration of war. I am on the move. You get to march with me. And if you do, you get to experience a living faith, a vibrant living faith. We had a Love on Moncton group yesterday, and I so appreciate the honesty of a couple of the folks there. And one person who's been just stepping out for years, a dear brother, I just love the fact he said, I'm terrified every time. <laughs> I'm terrified every time. But when I step out in obedience, right, just get to share love with somebody, just to get to share the presence of the Lord with somebody, in whatever way it may be, that's where your faith comes alive. That's where you grow. 
That's where you see the kingdom of God advancing through you. I really believe, friends, this is the greatest time in history to be alive. I believe every single one of us here this morning were born for such a time as this. God is moving, and we can't just sit around and enjoy his blessings. Jesus said, all power is mine, and now I give it to you. Go in my name, and you know what? I'm with you. You're not on your own. I'm there with you. What is the gospel? It's a declaration of war. What is the church? It's a movement of people who understand we are Jesus' only plan to transform and to heal our community. This is it. We're it, right? It gets done or doesn't get done. And I thank the Lord it's getting done in the lives of those who believe. Thanks for listening to the GT Moncton podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to get the sermon as soon as it's released. If you have any questions or want to get connected, go to gtmoncton.com. For live streams and other videos, check out the GT Moncton YouTube channel and follow us on social media at GT Moncton to stay up to date on what's going on. God bless.